Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. <laughs> I would ask if you would turn in your Bible, we're going to look at two short portions this morning, one in the Gospel of Matthew and one in the Gospel of Luke. We'll go to the Luke one first. Luke chapter 12. And we'll begin reading at verse 4. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 25, please. Matthew 25, beginning of verse 41. The context of this parable that Jesus is telling is in the context of a, a time of judgment, evaluation, and assessment. And in verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not care for you? And then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would pray, Father, for your grace and your divine enabling that our eyes would be opened, that we might see what it is you would say to us this morning from your word. Father, we open your word with expectation that your spirit will teach us, but we understand, Father, that we're powerless to affect the change necessary in our lives or even the understanding required to uh, move forward in any direction that pleases you. And so without the grace that you provide, without the inspiration of your spirit, without the enabling of, of your power in our lives, we're helpless and hopeless. And so we just throw ourselves upon you and your mercy. We pray for anyone here, Lord, who um, has not made uh, that uh, decision, Father, to obey 
and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For whatever reason, we pray for them that this morning might be a wake-up call, as it were, to what is at stake. For those of us who know you, we pray that your Spirit might continue to get, grant us assurance of our salvation and that we might live in the hope of eternal life and that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling even as you are working in us to do and to will of your good pleasure. And we would pray, Father, that, that everyone here might be uh, sobered by the realities that we will be speaking of. But Father, we pray for your grace to handle and speak the truth in love. For Lord, we pray this for your glory, that the name of Jesus Christ might be lifted up this day, and that as we meditate on him, we might uh, be ever more grateful and worshiping him for who he is and what he has done. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. It's funny, I sometimes think that John Lennon wrote that song for sermons on hell. Because it's like the perfect introduction to what we believe about eternity. And of course, there are lots of people who imagine there's no heaven. There are a lot of people who imagine there's no hell. Uh, there's a lot of people who imagine that when you die, your life ceases to exist. That this life is all that there is. You have whatever years you can squeeze out of this existence. And when you pass away, you enter into what sometimes is euphemistically called oblivion. That you're no longer conscious, you're no longer aware that your life is nothing more than an animal existence of biochemical reactions and that when those cease to function, you as a person no longer exist. That when those chemicals that are firing and those synapses that are interacting inside your skull, when they all cease to function, you as an individual no longer have any life at all. That's it. It's over. It's done. Of course, when we were looking at the passages last week, we were reminded that that's not what Jesus believed and it's not what Jesus taught. Imagine, if you will, there is a heaven. Imagine, if you will, that there is a hell. And of course, the answer to that is really, what does it matter if we imagine it? Whether we imagine it exists or we imagine it doesn't exist, our imagining or our, our thinking or our feeling or our believing anything about it is irrelevant to the objective reality. Just because I want something to be true doesn't make it true. Just something that I, I want something not to exist or to exist doesn't make it exist or not exist. The question is, how do we know about life after death? How can we possibly know anything about the grave and what goes on beyond it. And of course, there are lots of people who spend lots of time investigating this and talking about it. Theologians and philosophers and pop 
fiction writers and there are people who've had near-death experiences and they talk about their experiences and some write about their lights that they saw or meeting loved ones in that semi-quasi-state between life and death that they hovered in. And of course, there are all kinds of retorts to that. And so what can we possibly say about these issues? What can we possibly know? Does heaven exist? Does hell exist? Where will I spend eternity? Where will you spend it? Will we be spending it in oblivion? In other words, an unconscious non-existence where everything that we were no longer matters and no longer exists? Or will there be something that lasts of this person called me, I, that continues beyond the grave, that continues in some fashion, in some manner. And if that is the case, what will that existence be like? Where will you be 100 years from now? None of us will be here in this room, and I'm pretty sure that none of us will be walking on planet Earth. The question is, where will we be? I mean, if the world doesn't end and, and life progresses as it has in the past hundred years and the first, next hundred years, none of us in this room is going to be here. Now, it's also true that some of us may not be here next year. It's true that some of us might not be here next month, but we can all be assured that none of us will be here in a hundred years. And so the question is, where will you be on January 20th, 2119? You see, the Bible presents a worldview that life is not limited to the here and now. The Bible presents, both in the Old and New Testament, an expectation that the essential nature of human beings is immortal, that there's something within us that is going to last forever. As Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in our hearts, that there's something about us that just does not accept the idea that these few years that we walk on planet Earth are all that there is. Every culture, in every society, throughout history, has always believed that there is something beyond the grave. It is a universal truth of human nature that we reject the idea that death is the end. But that is not enough. What are the possibilities? Where could we be spending eternity? Well, the modern atheist says you'll be spending it nowhere because the grave is the end. Everything in us, however, screams against us, screams against this. And then, of course, there are large numbers of people on planet Earth who believe that life is just a cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth, uh, known as reincarnation. And the idea that existences continue in some fashion and that the soul migrates from one level of existence to another. 
what is interesting to me, and as one who has studied Hinduism and Buddhism, is that most Westerners find reincarnation kind of sexy. They kind of think, well, that's a kind of cool concept. And everybody who's a Westerner who believes in reincarnation is always sure that they once lived like it's Cleopatra or some Roman senator or some great general. But the reality is that in the East where reincarnation was created, reincarnation is not cool, it's not sexy, it's not fun, it's a curse. To them, that cycle is a curse. Why? Because as Siddhartha taught, life is suffering. And so therefore, the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth to them is a, wheel, a merry-go-round they want to get off of. To them, it's a curse, not a blessing. And you see what the Bible says is that it is appointed unto men once to die. And after this comes the judgment. And so that idea of reincarnation is incompatible with the scriptures. In other words, you can't have it both ways. You can't have uh, a reincarnation within a worldview that is in any way biblical. Because the Bible teaches us that we die once and then we face a judgment. That it is appointed to us to die. And that we're not going to be dying over and over and over again. And of course, you might say, well, how do you know which worldview is correct? How do we know that the Hindu worldview isn't the correct worldview? How do we know the Buddhist worldview is not the correct worldview? Well, the Bible presents to us a vision of two possibilities after death. One that is often referred to as heaven or eternal life. The other one, hell or eternal judgment or eternal punishment. And of course, that is incompatible with atheism. It's incompatible with Buddhism and Hinduism. It's incompatible with those other worldviews. But how would you know whether or not those worldviews are correct or which one you should subscribe to? Well, see, it comes down to this. It really comes down to who Jesus is. You see, when we think about hell in particular, when we talk about the doctrine of hell, where do we get most of our ideas about hell? Where do we get the idea, for example, that hell is associated with fire? Where do we get our idea that hell is associated with torment? Where do we get our idea that hell is a place of punishment and sorrow and regret and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth? Where do we get the idea that hell is such an awful place that it would be better to lose your eyes and cut off your hands than to end up in that fiery abyss? Where do we get those ideas? They come from Jesus. They're not made up by some medieval priestcraft, as Dorothy Sayers says. The doctrine of hell is not some medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. Or as R.C. Sproul said, the fact is, however, that virtually every statement in the Bible concerning hell comes from the lips of Jesus Christ. 
We cannot take Jesus seriously without also taking seriously what he said regarding eternal punishment. There is very little about hell in the Old Testament and very little in the epistles. It is almost as if God decided that a teaching this frightening would not be received from any lesser authority than that of his own son. So when it comes down to what do I think about where I spend eternity, the answer is found in Jesus Christ. And everything rests on who he is. If he is a fraud, if he's a myth, if there's, you know, if this is just some like, he was just some religious teacher or kook who went around thinking he was something more than he was, then nothing he says is of any lasting value. However, what we find in the New Testament and what we are confronted with in the New Testament is that the very person who talked about heaven and talked more about hell is the very person who actually died, was buried, and rose from the dead. And as Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, that it was the Lord Jesus Christ who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In other words, the gospel preaching and the gospel authority and the authenticity of the witness of the Christian faith is this. Jesus, the one who lived, preached, died on a Roman cross and was buried, rose physically from the grave and has now therefore been validated by his resurrection. He predicted his death and resurrection before he was arrested, tried, convicted, and executed. He predicted that he would spend three days in the grave. His enemies knew it, so they said, listen, you need to set a guard over this man's tomb because if his disciples come and steal his body, we'll have a bigger problem now than before. But what they could not have anticipated what hell itself could not have anticipated was that Christ would rise physically from the grave and nothing that man or hell could do could prevent that from happening. And he showed himself alive, according to Acts, with many infallible proofs so that Christianity has always rested on the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, what we have to say this morning about the doctrine of hell and about the doctrine of heaven is built upon his statements. So any difficulties we have are not with me. If you have any difficulties this morning, they're going to be with him. And what did he say? The one who has been to death and back. The one who knows hell because he created it. The one who understands what hell is because he endured it. The one who is one who was sent in order that we might escape it. What does he have to say to us this morning? He says in Matthew 25, verse 46, that there are only two possible outcomes 
from members of the human race. That there are those who go into eternal punishment and that there are those who go into eternal life. Those are the two outcomes. So the question before you this morning is, where will I spend eternity? Will I spend eternity in eternal life? Or will I spend eternity in eternal punishment? Because that is the vision that Jesus projects to us this morning. That is the only two outcomes of our existence here on earth. What is it about this place called hell? What is its nature? What is the nature of this place? And what is the nature of this punishment that he talks about? This eternal punishment. Well, the Scriptures tell us that it is a day of judgment that is coming upon the human race. Peter wrote in his second epistle, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. That there's a day of judgment that is coming for the human race and that there's an outcome of that judgment which is referred to as the destruction of ungodly men. That there is a punishment that destroys those who know not Christ as their Savior. Now we must not understand the word destroy in the way like obliterate. We must understand the word destroy like the word ruin. In other words, all of the plans, all of the schemes, all of the ambitions, all of the proud aspirations that govern a person's existence apart from Christ, all of the things that they hope to accomplish, all of the dreams that they ever dreamt, all of the things they ever aspired to are ruined in that day of judgment. All of the fame, all of the fortune, all of the glory, all of the power, all of the might that they have accumulated in this life is destroyed in that day of judgment. And in that moment, all of the pride where they thought that they could be like God, the master of their own destiny, the captain of their own fate, in that day, they are undone. That eternal punishment is also synonymous with the wrath of God. This is a hard thing. You know, as a preacher, there are some subjects that are awkward to talk about. Like sex, for example. That's awkward to talk about in, in the church. There are some subjects that are just easy to talk about. Words of encouragement, assurance of salvation, comforting messages. But then there are those things that the Bible teaches that are just terrible to talk about. They're terrible. And because they're terrible, a lot of times preachers just avoid them. They don't want to talk about them. And sometimes our silence on the subject is 
not good. It's not healthy. One of the reasons why I believe it's very important for you as an individual to read the Bible, to read the Bible cover to cover, to read the Old Testament and the New Testament is because it will prevent you from getting a skewed vision of God. If you only go to those passages that make you feel good, then you're going to have a God that feels good. But I'm going to tell you that God is not interested in making us feel good. He's interested in making us holy. And if you only wander in those fields of pasture where you're comfortable and they comfort you all the time and that's only where you go, you're going to get a God that is not the God of the Bible. Because Jesus did not make people comfortable. In fact, he went out of his way sometimes, purposefully, deliberately, in your face kind of way, to make people uncomfortable. And so when we read the Bible from cover to cover, we're confronted with a God who is, who is holy and just and righteous and powerful and, and who does shocking things. Things that when we read them, we're like, whoa, whoa, that's not nice, God. We read about, for example, in the Old Testament, how the sons of Aaron wanted to bring into the, into the holy place uh, an incense of their own creation. God had told them, here, make this incense and burn this incense on the altar. Here are the ingredients, and here's how you do it. And then these two sons of Aaron decide, well, God, I like this formula a little better. They maybe, I don't know why, they thought their fragrance might smell better. They thought to add something, take something away. I don't know. They offer it, and God strikes them down. Bang! Boom! They're gone! Okay, that's kind of shocking. How about this one? Later on in Israel's history, here's, here's David, and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured and is now being sent back, and it's been residing in this village, and David wants to bring it to Jerusalem. And so he masses this great company of people, and they put the Ark on this, this wagon, and there's the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, and they're carrying, and they're singing, and they're celebrating the great victory in God's presence, and the Ark... It's a bump in the road. And the ox stumble. And Uzzah puts out his hands to steady the ark. And God strikes him dead. Why? Because he violated the sanctity of the ark. Now I have to tell you, that doesn't sound nice to me. But you see, it's like C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia when they're first introduced, the children are introduced to Aslan and they find out that Aslan is a lion and they're terrified of the thought that this, this being they're going to meet is a great lion. And Susan asks the beavers, is it safe? And the beaver says, no, of course it's not safe. He 
He's not safe. But he's good. And you see, when we come to this place, we talk about the wrath of God, and we think about the fact that God is not comfortable with sin, that God doesn't overlook sin, that God doesn't treat sin lightly the way we do, that God can't be bribed, he cannot be made to look the other way, that there is only one position God has towards sin, and it is a never-ending, raging hostility. And that the wrath of God is poured out upon the sons of disobedience, the Bible says. And that's in the New Testament. In John chapter 3, it says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Notice how it says there, It says the wrath of God abides on him. You see, John chapter 3 verse 17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Understand this, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because it was condemned already. The wrath of God abides on. What it means is that every human being born into this world is born into a position where they're already at war with God. By their own rebellion and sinful nature, they have put themselves in opposition to God and because of that, the wrath of God abides on them until such time that they believe in the Son. What can we say about this place? What did Jesus say about this place? All I can tell you is this. That Jesus was so concerned about people understanding the seriousness of sin and the necessity of their salvation that he would choose the most shocking words, the most shocking metaphors, the most shocking analogies to arrest our attention, seize our imagination, and awake us from the slumber of sin. And it must be only because he loves us and does not want us to perish. And so he would use imagery of fire and flame and death and decay and torment to communicate to us just the awfulness of this existence that awaits all those who do not repent and change their mind about their condition and their need of a Savior. And so what, he would, what did he say? He said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed ones, into eternal fire. The first thing we can say about hell is that it is a place of separation. Everyone who is there is separated from God. That, that one of the definitions of death or one of the understandings of death is separation. And that is why this is called the second death. Why? Because, you see, the Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. You, that 
that when God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, you eat this fruit, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. What happened when they broke his commandment? They died. How? They were separated from God. They didn't physically die at that moment, but in the moment they disobeyed God, they were separated from God. And so the Bible speaks of death as separation. So when I am, when I am physically dead, the, the spirit and soul that defines who I am is separated from my body. When I am spiritually dead, I am separated from God. And that's why the Bible refers to us as dead men walking, dead women walking. That we are, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Not that we're physically dead or that we don't have personality or will or emotions, but there's a separation between us and God. And the Bible talks about an eternal death, which leads us to a separation that never ends. And that is why it's referred to as the second death. Not only is it a place of separation, it is a place of wicked association. Jesus says, you will say to, he will say to those on his left, depart from you, you accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Listen, um, Satan does not rule in hell. It's not his kingdom. It's not his domain. Do you know where his kingdom is right now? It's right here. This is his domain. John says in his epistle, the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. That he is called the prince of the power of the air. This is where he rules. He rules now here because we gave him that. Adam and Eve were the rightful rulers of earth. They were God's regents on earth. They were given that position of authority and they handed it to Satan in their rebellion. They obeyed him and because you become a slave to what you obey, Romans says, they obeyed him and became his servants, putting him in mastery turning over, as it were, the rightful rule of earth and its dominion to him. He does not rule in hell. And he will not rule here forever. Read Revelation. The great hallelujah chorus. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. There is a day coming when Satan will be cast out of this dominion. He will be dethroned for the usurper that he is. And hell was made for him. But those who refuse the grace of God remain aligned with him. And so while hell was never made for human beings, the Bible never says that it was made for us. By our choice and by our persistence, it is the outcome of our allegiance. The Bible talks about it being a place, Jesus talks about it, of being a place of utter darkness. A place of gnashing of teeth. These are the words that Jesus uses. 
the phrase gnashing of teeth is interesting because gnashing of teeth in the Bible is a phrase that speaks of incredible suffering. You, you know what it is, right? If you've ever done any kind of carpentry and you've banged your thumb with the hammer, you know immediately what happened. Like, right? You grind your teeth instantly in pain. That's one sense of gnashing of teeth. But there's another sense of gnashing of teeth. And that is in rage and anger. We see that when Stephen was preaching and the crowds around them gnashed their teeth at him in anger. You see, hell is not just a place of incredible pain. It is also a place of unremitting anger. Anger at self, anger at others, anger at God. What can be said about the nature of this punishment? Well, we know from the Old and the New Testaments that justice is the foundation of God's throne. That the punishment will be just. The Bible uses flame to describe the punishment. And is it literal flame? When it talks about the lake of fire, is it a literal, a, a literally a lake of fire? I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. I think it is. I think there's a reason why we're resurrected. You see, the Bible talks about a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And this is a terrifying thought. But if you think about it, what is the mechanism that allows you to experience pain? It's interesting to me that your brain, right? Your brain doesn't have any pain things. Like people, they do brain surgery on people with them being conscious. So they, they take this, you know, the skull cap off and they start doing stuff inside the brain and the person's awake. Why? Because there's no pain sensors in the brain. So what that tells me is, is that I need a body to experience pain. You see, Jesus talks about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. It's not disembodied souls that are cast into hell. It's people. Spirit, soul, and body. That's terrifying. Because how would I know darkness without eyes? How would I feel pain without fingers and skin and Nerves. And the Bible, Jesus uses the expression, it's the place where the fire does not end, it is not quenched, and the worm does not die. That's a very disgusting image. He's talking about maggots. He's talking about maggots that feed on corpses. And I think about 
what that imagery is. And I think, what is he getting? What, is, what does he mean? Other than just really finding the most repulsive image that we could, nobody, nobody finds. There's no culture. We, we, we burn our dead. We bury our dead. We hide our dead. We don't want that decay, that rottenness in our face. There's no culture that embraces that. And here Jesus is saying, their, their maggots do not die. And I, and I think to myself that there is a, a world that we bring into eternity in our past. And you think about how the things that haunt you your whole life, the choices that you've made that you regret, you think about all of the rottenness that could be in one person's life and they carry that into eternity. And there's no forgiveness. And there's no redemption. And there's no forgetfulness. There is no wiping away of the tears from their eyes. And all they have for all eternity is just the memory of all of the should-ofs, could-ofs, would-ofs. And it does not end. When Abraham saw the rich man in torment, the two words he said to him that I think are the worst aspect of hell. He said, child, remember. Think about your memories that haunt you. Things that you've done. Things that you regret. But if you're a Christian, you know on some level, even if you're not emotionally experiencing it, you know that that's forgiven, paid for. And God says, I will remember it no more. But for the unbeliever, those things, they just don't go away. This afternoon, in a few minutes, we're going to go downstairs. We're going to talk about some of the objections that people have to hell. Like, why would God make it forever? Why would he, why not, like, okay, I lived 95 years, Lord. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't accept him as my Savior. I never understood that, or I didn't want to believe it, or whatever. But now I'm in hell. Why not just make it, like, 95 years? Like, one year for every year of my life. Okay, wait, okay, how about, okay, maybe it was really bad, the things I did. So how about like 10 times that? 950 years. How about 1,000 years? We'll round up. The Bible doesn't present it that way. Why? Why is it that someone who died in the great flood of Noah is still in torment thousands of years later? And why will it be if there's someone in this room who after hearing this walks out and doesn't accept Christ? Why will they still be in hell 10,000 years from now? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Jesus said these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I conclude with these two quotes. One from an old Scottish preacher by the name of J. Boyd Nicholson. How to escape hell? Flee to Christ. Flee from the wrath to come or else risk an eternity without God forever. We know nothing about hell, but God knows. It is so terrible, so terrifying that God was willing to send his own darling son from heaven. Christ was willing to be born into the human race and walk the dusty streets of earth, scorned by sinners until at last they nailed him to a cross on old Golgotha. And when man had done his worst, almighty God drew the veil of darkness around him. Then Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The pains of hell took hold upon him. He endured that willingly that you and I might escape hell. And from the author C.S. Lewis, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Make the right choice. Flee to Christ. Flee from the wrath to come. Let us pray. If there's anyone here who has wondered where they stand with God, salvation is very simple in one sense. Christ died for your sins. He was buried according to the Scriptures and was raised on the third day for your forgiveness. The price for your forgiveness has been paid in full. There's nothing left for you to do. There's no work, no gift, no offering, no promise, pledge, or commitment that could purchase your forgiveness. It is as simple as believing a promise. Jesus said, whoever believes in me shall not perish. So you have to trust Him. He's the only one who can save you. And He's the only one who has the ability to bear your sin for you. And He's already done it. So just call out to Him. Tell Him that you're a sinner. Don't deny it anymore. Tell him that you deserve whatever punishment God felt just. But thank him that he bore it for you. And ask him now 
to be your Savior. He says, I will not cast out anyone who comes to me. You don't have to worry that you say the right words because it's not the words that save you. Only Jesus saves you. He saves you by His grace. And He's already shown it at the cross. Just trust Him. Say yes to Him. Rest in Him. And don't worry about your eternal destination. For those of us who've trusted Him, thank Him. Thank Him for everything that might have been but isn't anymore. Thank Him for the cross. Lord, as we end this time together, we pray that our hearts might be directed toward You in worship, adoration, and praise. We have no idea what hell is like. We have no idea really of what heaven is like. It's beyond our imagination, our worst nightmare, our greatest joys. These places are beyond our comprehension. But we take by faith what you have said, Lord Jesus, that we should flee this wrath and we should flee to Christ. And so we come to you, Lord Jesus, praising you that you are the victor over sin and death hell, the grave, Satan. There is no enemy that has not been defeated. You are triumphant, Lord of all. And we trust you. We thank you. We ask your blessing. We pray for anyone here who is not sure. They're still holding out or they're plagued with doubt. The enemy has sown in their heart and mind. We pray that you would deliver them from their doubts and their fears their hesitations, their cowardice even, and that they would trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.